room would think, okay, I want to be wise or I want to be smart, right? I like to be smart. In fact, uh, maybe in school, you like to be the guy that had the answer or the girl that had the answer and be able to help other people, but we like to be smart. No one likes to be stupid, right? No one likes to be the dumb person in the room, the person that's looked at that doesn't have the answers or the person that should have the answer and all of a sudden now you don't. Uh, if you're married, you're probably used to that, <laughs> right? Your wife or your husband looks for you to have done something and you're like, oh, wait a minute, that, you did tell me that while I was watching football and I completely forgot. Right? That happens uh, very regularly in my household, uh, whether it's video games or football or just because uh, I'm a person and I am terrible at remembering things. Maybe you are uh, the same way. So when we talk about wisdom and, and uh, this day from Scripture here in James chapter 3, we're not necessarily talking about being smart. We'll talk about that in just a second. But everyone thinks they're smart. Right? Everyone, even if you don't admit it, everyone thinks they're smart, which is why uh, we get upset at people who don't do things right. We're very, it's very good for us to be, and easy for us to be critical, isn't it? Very easy for to look at someone next to us as screwed up and go, I can't believe you did that. Um, this is something that I struggle with a lot, particularly on the roads of Okinawa. Uh, those of you that are new to Okinawa, um, have fun driving in Okinawa for these next couple years. It will test your patience in ways that nothing else can, right? Particularly if you're used to being driving fast, right? Because the average speed limit around here is like 40 clicks, about 25 miles an hour. You just don't get anywhere fast, right? You're commuting to work and it's 14 miles and it takes you an hour, like for that's crazy, right? So that's something that tests my patience because I get behind uh, an older Japanese lady that's in front of me that's got that little sticker. Maybe she has like four stickers there to let you know that she's old, right? You know what I'm talking about because you've been there. And she's doing like 15 clicks underneath the speed limit. So it's 40 and she's doing like 25. And it's two lanes, right? And there's no access to be able to get around her. And it's one road that goes one direction for a very long time. And you're just stuck there. Nothing tries my patience more because what, what I think when I see that is, this lady stinks at driving. I hate her. And I start like cursing or saying bad things in my head. Usually it's out loud unless you're in the car with me and then I'll be quiet. Right? Maybe, you, you're, maybe you're the same, the same way. But I get so frustrated. Why? Because I think that I can drive better than her or him. Right? I think that I'm a better driver. I think that they're terrible. I think that I'm wise and they're stupid. Right? At least when it comes to driving. And we're, it's so easy for us as people to be critical and to think we're smarter than someone else. So let's talk this morning about what true wisdom really is. Uh, one commentator says this about this particular passage of scripture. He says that this passage, verses 13 through 18, is the very heart and center of this body of this epistle. Now, this is like the, the focal point of what James is talking about. It's leading up to this, and everything after this will kind of point back to these few verses on wisdom. And James has already mentioned wisdom. We've already had a sermon on wisdom um, from the very beginning of James. James chapter 1 and verse 5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given to him. So the great thing for us as believers is that if you feel like you're not wise enough or hopefully you want to be even wiser than you are, God says very plainly to us that if we want to be wise, all we have to do is what? Ask. We just have to ask. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God to give it to all men without reproach. In other words, he just wants to pour wisdom upon wisdom upon wisdom to each and every one of us here this morning. So that's the great thing about this is that we all stink. We are all very unwise, and we do things we shouldn't do, but the blessing of the scriptures is that God says, I want to give you more wisdom. 
If you will but ask, I want to pour wisdom upon wisdom upon wisdom upon you. So we're going to look this morning at what exactly true wisdom is, what exactly wisdom looks like according to the scripture to make sure that we're seeking after the right kind of knowledge, the right kind of wisdom for our lives. So what wisdom is not is uh, what I'm going to show you here, the first, uh, the first little cartoon. I have a couple cartoons this morning. I'm a big fan of cartoons. It helps me to think. Um, I love Calvin and Hobbes. Right, so if you can't read this, here's what Calvin says true wisdom is. People think it must be fun to be super genius, but they don't realize how hard it is to put up with the idiots in the world. That's not true wisdom, right? That's not true wisdom. That's oftentimes the way we think. Like, I'm just smarter than someone else. Everyone else is dumb. But as we'll see this morning, that is not true wisdom. That's not a biblical approach to wisdom. That's not a biblical approach to those that we encounter with our own um, wisdom. So, Let's look at James chapter 3 again. We're going to read these verses again together, beginning in verse 13, to kind of refresh our memory and to kind of know what we're going on here. So verse 13 says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist... There will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and causes fights? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, but you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions. So we see that first verse, verse 13, it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? That is the very first big question we're going to look at this morning. It's a rhetorical question. So I don't want you raising your hands and go, oh, I'm wise. Yeah, right? Like, that's, that's not good. There's always that one person, by the way, whenever you're speaking or teaching, you say, if this is a rhetorical question you ask, someone always answers it, okay? So when I ask questions this morning, so you know, almost all the questions this morning are rhetorical. So don't raise your hand and, and don't elbow your husband or your wife, right? Let's, listen to this. You need to be wiser, right? Don't do that. Uh, these are rhetorical questions this morning. So the first question that James asked, the big question of this passage is, who is wise and understanding among you? Who is wise and understanding among you? So I'll ask you this morning, do you think that you fit that bill? Do you think that you, as a believer, are wise and understanding, at least to some degree? As we'll see this morning, God actually calls us as believers to be wise and to be understanding. And I think that every believer in some way, shape, or form has a measure of wisdom and understanding. So let's look at what this means. So what is wisdom? In order to understand who is wise and who is understanding, I think we need to first define what biblical wisdom is. It's not smarts, right? I remember being in school um, one time, and people thought I was a genius, because of one test I took one time. In 10th grade, it was a math test. It was some like national math test you had to take to see where you fell. And I scored in like the 95th percentile. Like, yeah, like, you're so smart. What they didn't know is the very last page I ran out of time and I just marked C all the way down. And luckily for me, 80% of the questions, the answer was C. <laughs> I got really lucky. People were like, man, you're so smart. Like, yeah, that's right. Like, bring up and bring, right? No. I just got lucky, right? That's not wisdom. That's just maybe getting lucky or being smart. 
But the scripture talks about being blessed when you're wise, right? Psalms chapter 1 says very clearly that blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is what? In the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. And then he'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth its fruit in its season. In other words, when things come down, when you're in difficult situations, when it's time to produce what you ought to produce as a believer, a.k.a. in this particular passage, wisdom, knowing what to do, we will do that if we are grounded and rooted in the stream, which is what? The word of God. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So let's look then at what Scripture says wisdom actually is. And what we're going to have to do is look at quite a few passages in the Old Testament and New Testament to define this idea of wisdom before we start talking about its fruits and what it means to us specifically. So let's look then back at the book of Proverbs. And these verses will be on the screen for you if you want to write them down or or be able to read them with me. So what is godly wisdom? Proverbs says this, Proverbs 9, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding or is insight. So the very first thing we're going to see in the book of, in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Proverbs, is this idea or this phrase, the fear of the Lord. I don't think we can talk about wisdom this morning without talking about the scripture, talking about the idea that wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. Other passages say the same thing. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's Proverbs 1.7. Fools despise wisdom instruction. So the idea here, the juxtaposition is, fear of the Lord equals knowledge or wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So this link between the fear of the Lord and wisdom, knowledge, and instruction. Proverbs 129 says, because they hated knowledge and did not choose to what? To fear the Lord. They did not choose the fear of the Lord. So if you fear the Lord, you have wisdom and knowledge. If you don't fear the Lord, you are a fool or you are hating Knowledge. Proverbs 2.5 says, Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find knowledge of God. So the Lord is directly linked to our understanding of who God is and knowing who God is and enjoying his characteristics and what he has for us, this idea of the fear of the Lord. And that's just Proverbs and Psalms. So let's look again at some other wisdom literature. How about the book of Job? Job was a man that in Job chapter 1, Scripture says that Job was a man that was the most upright in the world at that time. Scripture specifically says that. He is the most upright man there is. Job would not only offer sacrifices for himself, but when his kids got together and had parties, he would go and offer sacrifices for them just in case they had sinned, right? Just, just in case something happened to skew their relationship with God, Job would go and offer sacrifice for them just in case. This man was upright. It says he was almost blameless, an awesome man of God, following after God in the fear of the Lord. And here's what Job says about living a life that is pleasing to God. Job 28 and verse 12 says this, But where shall wisdom be found? Where shall wisdom be found? What? And where is the place of understanding? That's the question he asks. Where shall wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? And then he answers it a few verses later in verse 28 when he says this. And he said to man, Behold, The fear of the Lord is what? That is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. The fear of the Lord, that is what wisdom is. And to turn away from evil and understanding. Notice the link between wisdom 
and fearing the Lord, but not only that, the link between fearing the Lord and actually resulting in some kind of action. Right? The end of that verse says, and to turn away from evil and understanding. Just like we'll see here in James chapter 3, it's not just an idea, it's not just a theology in your mind, but it's something that practically is living itself out. Once you understand something, it then produces something in your actions. It's not just a seminary type of knowledge. I had some friends I went to seminary with that were brilliant, brilliant people, but they never went to church while they were at seminary. I didn't quite understand that. How, how can you be a believer and not be fellowshipping and going to church and practicing that knowledge that you have? But it's very common to get so involved sometimes in a knowledge that doesn't actually produce anything in your life. But that's not correct wisdom because the fear of the Lord not only changes how we think about God, how we think about wisdom, but it changes how we act because it helps us to turn away from evil and from understanding. But then you have Deuteronomy. So let's go to Moses. <clears throat> In Deuteronomy, we have more sayings about wisdom, about the fear of the Lord. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 6 says this, So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by what? By fearing him. So this comes to that action portion, right? You shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him, showing wisdom in the way that you walk. Verse 12, just a few verses down in chapter 10, says this, And now Israel... What does the Lord your God require of you but what? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. The fear of the Lord is what God requires of Israel to be faithful to him and keeping his commandments and following after what he has for them. John MacArthur, a great pastor to listen to if you're looking for some good podcasts, he's got some good sermons. He makes this statement about that statement, the fear of the Lord. He says, in the Old Testament, the phrase fear of the Lord was equivalent to trusting in the Lord. That statement, fear of the Lord, could be equated to the idea of trusting in the Lord. So when we look at wisdom from the Old Testament, we see that God says, you can have wisdom. I want to give you wisdom. And it is practical for you to be able to live in the way that I've called you to, but it starts with fearing the Lord. It starts with putting your trust in who God is. Because fear of the Lord is not the idea that you're scared and you're so scared your feet are, you know, your knees are knocking together and you're trembling in your boots and you can't do anything because you're so scared that God's going to judge you. Well, there's a little bit of that and Jude talks about that, that you're scared from doing things and sometimes you do right because you're scared, right? Uh, those of you that have children have used that tactic on numerous occasions, right? Your dad's going to come home, you better shape up, right? Or you're going to get a spanking, or you're going to get in timeout, you're going to get your Nintendo system taken away from you. Lots of fear there, right? Um, but that's not, a, that's not the idea of fear of the Lord. The fear is a reverence. It's an awe. Because you understand who God is, you understand what God has done, you understand who he is to you, and because of who God is to you, because of what he's done in your life, because of how he's changed you, and because he is the creator, sustainer of the universe, because of that, you fall on your knees in awe of who he is in reverence to who he is and what he has done for you. And because of that, now you live out your life in the way that he has commanded to you because you love him. We don't obey our parents because we're fearful of our parents, hopefully. We obey our parents because we know they love us. 
because we know they've cared for us, and because of their character, it then spurs us on to want to obey them and please them because we love them. And that's the idea here from Deuteronomy, the idea from the Old Testament. This fear of the Lord produces in us a reverence that makes us then want to trust in God and who he is and his commandments and obey him. So the fear of the Lord was equivalent to trusting in God. That was the Old Testament. So let's look at a few passages in the New Testament to tie this together. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24 says this, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and what? The wisdom of God. It is Christ himself, the Messiah, who is called the very embodiment of wisdom. The very embodiment of wisdom is Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, just a few verses later, this. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us what? Wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Do you see the link there between wisdom and those other attributes? He became wisdom, and then what else? Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The fear of the Lord, this wisdom directly correlated to our trusting in who God is, because true wisdom can never be found apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ in our lives, connecting us to the power source, which is God the Father. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3 says this, Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The very last word in verse 2 is Christ. Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if we want to be wise, if we want to have biblical wisdom, that starts with our first understanding who God is, fearing him by trusting in who he is and what he has done. So in order to understand this passage in James chapter 3, the first thing we have to understand is that true wisdom can only be found in the person and work of Christ, God's Messiah, redemption from the world through him. So let's look at one more, one more statement about wisdom um, in Ecclesiastes. One more statement about wisdom in Ecclesiastes. We talked about godly wisdom, talked about what good wisdom is. Now let's talk even about what earthly wisdom is. And the Old Testament gives us this. Think about the one person in the Old Testament who probably would have known what real wisdom is. That's who? King Solomon. Ask Solomon one day, Solomon, what do you want? I'll give you anything, you're ruling, what would you like, and what does Solomon ask for? He asked for discernment or wisdom in order to be able to rule. And so God says, because you've asked this not for yourself, but for those that you rule, I will pour wisdom upon you so much so there will never be anyone that's been before you that has your wisdom or anyone after you that will have had the wisdom that I'm going to give to you. So Solomon was the most wise person to have ever lived. So what does Solomon say about wisdom? Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 16 says this, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And I perceive that this also is what? Striving after the wind. In fact, in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, who most scholars think wrote Ecclesiastes, makes this statement, vanity of vanities. Heard that statement before? Vanity of vanities. Uh, I've heard people talk about vanity and they talk about it when you're like holding sand and you go to grab sand, and as you're holding sand, what happens to the sand? It pours through your hands. You, don't, you have it for a second, and then it, it goes away. That's kind of that idea of vanity of vanities. You search after and strive after and try to get all these things, and then when you get it, what? It's gone through your hand. Maybe a better illustration would be grabbing after gas or steam coming off of a pot. 
as soon as you grab it, it's gone. That's the idea of what Solomon's saying here. He says that wisdom is even like that. So we've read that wisdom is a good thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that we ought to get wisdom for our life. James 3 says you ought to have wisdom as believers. So why does the wisest person that ever lived, Solomon, say in Ecclesiastes, that I strove after, I got it, I had it in full, but what? It was like striving after the wind, like grabbing something and then it being gone. Because Solomon, unfortunately, as wise as he was, made a giant mistake in his life. That was the end-all, be-all for Solomon, was wisdom. But it wasn't wisdom in who God is. It was earthly wisdom, which is why he says, just a few verses later, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13, the end of the matter is this. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Because Solomon recognized at the end of his life he had to go after all this stuff. Solomon had something that no one else would probably ever have in the history of mankind. He had the time and opportunity to do whatever he wanted and to go after whatever he wanted. Think about it. At the time that he lived, he had so much wealth building this temple, putting gold everywhere, right? They could just throw gold in the temple like it's nothing. They had so much wealth. He went after wealth and he said, wealth isn't where it's at. Like, I have all this money. I'm not happy. He had so much sex, right? He had 700, 300 wines, 700 concubines. He got to have sex with a new woman every day for three years before he had sex with his first wife again. And people say, sex, that's where it's at. Sexual gratification, that's going to give me true, true happiness. And yet Solomon says, no, I'm very unsatisfied. He had exact power, one of the greatest rulers of his time, could have done whatever he wanted. And yet he says at the very end, all this means nothing. Um, there's probably no one in this room that will have a time where you can completely have the time and the power and the opportunity and the wealth to be able to explore whatever you want, whenever you want, at any time you want. Solomon did, and after he did it, he said, it was vanity. It didn't mean anything. And at the end of the day, what does he say? He says, at the end of the matter is this, fear God, fear God, and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. And what we find in the Old Testament and in the scriptures is that when we don't fear God, when we don't put our trust in who God is, we don't have true wisdom. And not only do we not have true wisdom, but scripture says that we end up going away from God completely. Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13 is a passage of scripture that I love to quote. It's very indicative of what we do as people when we're not satisfied with what God's given us. Jeremiah 2.13 says this, God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, he says, my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's the idea that God is this big fountain of fresh spring water. Come to me and drink and you will be satisfied. You're not satisfied with where you are. You're, you're in your sin. You're not doing what you ought to be doing. So life doesn't have meaning for you. Come to me and drink from my water for I am the water of life. He tells the woman at the well in John 4, right? I am the water of life. Come drink from me. But instead of drinking from this big fountain that overflows with fresh, natural water, I mean, what do you want more when you're unsatisfied or you're parched than fresh, good, cold, right? Cold water for the most part. By the way, I'm going to stop, stop here for a second. If you're one of those people that you get people lukewarm water or hot water when they're exercising, um, there's a special place in purgatory for you, right? Uh, no, right, I don't believe in purgatory, but uh, if there was, it would be that, and you'd be stuck in a DMV line, Right? <laughs> So uh, anyways, so he says, listen, I have this nice fresh water for you. It's cold. It's refreshing. It will help you. But instead of drinking from this wellspring that I've given to you that is awesome, 
you've kind of gone over here and you've dug your own well. And a well doesn't fresh water, right? A well holds rainwater, runoff water. And he said, the worst thing is, not only did you build your own well, it's not as good water, but it's a broken well. It doesn't even hold water. So as soon as the water gets in, what happens? It goes right through the well. I had a professor in seminary that related to this, and I thought it was very good. When you could go over here and drink from the water in the back that's cold out of the thing or a water fountain, instead of doing that, you've gone outside and started to lick up one of these puddles on the ground, on your hands and knees, trying to lap the last bit of water that you have. But that's what we do as believers when we forsake what God has given to us in his wisdom as the right way, as the good way we ought to be living, and instead we come over here and say, you know what? I think I'd rather just do it my own way. I'll build my own well. I'll get my own water. And instead of drinking from the nice, fresh, cool water, we've done what they did in Eastern Europe to me when I came in in 100-degree weather and I was hot. They gave me hot tea. Right? We're drinking from things that don't satisfy. We're on our ground lapping up the last bit of the rainwater when God has offered to us something much better. And that is what Solomon says here when we don't fear God and keep his commandments. The height of folly, the height of folly, don't fear God or keep his commandments. And that is where sin, that is where folly uh, begins. So now that we understand, I think, what wisdom is from scripture, it's fearing the Lord and obeying his commandments. I think we can understand what James is saying here now better in James chapter 3 and verse 13. Look then at James 13 again. Now that we understand wisdom a little better, who is wise and understanding among you? That rhetorical question. I think from the Old Testament, we've specifically, we've answered what that really is. Specifically, Scripture says that if you're wise and understanding, it's because you have what? Feared God and kept His commandments. That you have feared God and kept His commandments. In other words, you have trusted in who God is. Uh, I hope that most of us in here this morning are believers and we've trusted in who Christ is. But if you're not, I'll tell you this morning as we talk about wisdom, if you've never put your faith and trust in God, this is the kind of wisdom that you'll never be able to obtain apart from God. Because left to ourselves, we are stupid people, right? Uh, I hear people joke all the time, and the devil made me do it, or the devil's right on my back, he's trying to tempt me. And I tell people all the time, like, you must be a much more spiritual person than I am. That's probably true anyways. But I don't usually need the devil or a demon to tempt me. I screw up all the time, and it has nothing to do with a devil or a demon. It's because I want to, and I choose to do it, because I suck. And I think most of you could say the same thing. We usually mess up because we're at war with the lust in our own flesh, and we want to do wrong, so we do wrong, not because someone made us, but because I wanted to. And I chose to do something I shouldn't have chosen to do, because I wasn't fearing the Lord. That's not genuine wisdom. Genuine wisdom is trusting in the Lord, fearing Him. So let's look then together at what James says in verse 13. Who is wise understanding among you? And then here's the answer that he kind of gives there, the kind of thesis statement. He says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So if you are wise and understanding, and if you are a believer here today, you may feel like you're not wise. You may feel like you're not as wise as you need to be maybe. But according to scripture, if you fear the Lord, if you've trusted in God, if you put your faith and trust in the work of Jesus Christ and you are one in him and he is in you and the blood of Christ has cleansed you from your sin, you are wise because God has made you at least somewhat wise because you have Christ, because you fear God. Now, are there levels of that we'll talk about in a second? Of course, right? We can be more wise or less wise as we fear God. But the initial fearing, the believing, if you're a believer, you ought to be at least somewhat wise. Um, so who is wise and understanding among you? Here's what James says you ought to do. 
By his good conduct, let him show his work in the meekness of wisdom. Let him show his work in the meekness of wisdom. So what does he mean by conduct? It's the idea of a a way of life, right? A behavior, something you're normally doing day in and day out. And meekness is the same word that Paul uses of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. Uh, Remember the fruit of the Spirit? And Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You see, these fruits of the Spirit are only fruits that can come from what? The Spirit. And if you're a believer and the Spirit dwells in you, these are all fruits that ought to be in your life. Some greater than others. We're constantly working on them to exhibit them in better ways. But these are all things that only believers can exhibit. And this idea of gentleness in verse 3 is the same word used here in verse 13 that says meekness. Meekness. Um, meekness is often understood. I know we talk about this a lot. Maybe in Sunday schools when you're a kid, you've heard this statement. But meekness is not what? Weakness, Right? Meekness doesn't mean that you're, you're frail or that you can't stand up for yourself or that you can't do anything or you don't have the power to do things. Meekness is the idea that you have the power and you have the strength, but you choose to control it and not use it in situations when you very easily could. Uh, my wife and I have traveled a good bit here in Asia in the two years that we've been here. We love going to different uh, little countries. If you've traveled um, to maybe Thailand or Hong Kong or some of these major Asian cities, what you, what you find oftentimes in these huge crowds is they'll just start pushing you out of the way, right? Like you'll be trying to walk, walk together and like this huge crowd and this small little old lady that looks like she couldn't lift anything will like elbow you, boom, and like push you out of the way, right? It's very common in their culture, these crowds. So I get frustrated with that, especially since I'm usually like a head taller than most of the people that were like in Thailand when we were there. I get a little frustrated, and so I tell my wife to do is hold my shirt, and I get it about as big as I can, right? And I make sure to lock my lats, right, and make sure your arms are real stiff. And I'm not moving for anybody. I'm moving right down the middle, and if they're coming at me, they see me. Most of the time, they'll kind of move out of the way because they're, they're smaller because they see that look on my face. I get frustrated, right? And I kind of, if they hit me, I'll on purpose move and maybe even nudge them a little bit like, yeah, that's right. That's not meekness, right? <laughs> meekness is knowing you can do that, and not doing that. So that's a good example of how not to show meekness, right? But that's, that's the idea. It's not that you can't. If I wanted to, you know, for most of these countries with being a bigger guy, I could just push them out of the way and throw them down and say, like, you jerks, and really get upset and angry. But meekness that I did not exhibit will more or less be, okay, you can keep pushing me, right? Like, hey, just, just keep shoving me. It's no big deal. We'll just work our way through the crowd. I'm okay being shoved and pushed and separated from my wife a little bit um, because I don't like her anyways, you know? Um, no, I'm okay with those things. I'll just, it's not a big deal. That's the idea of meekness. It's not the idea that you can't do it. It's the idea that you choose not to do it. Particularly when it comes to wisdom, think about all the times when you could correct someone, when you could put somebody in their place, when you could use your strength or your knowledge to overpower another individual, and yet you choose not to. That's meekness. That's the idea of what he's talking about here. So by your behavior, verse 13 says, by your manner of conduct, your lifestyle, if you are understanding, then show your works in the gentleness or meekness of wisdom. In other words, if you are truly wise, your lifestyle will not be one that goes around flaunting it in front of everyone else, pushing it on everyone else, telling everyone else, yeah, 
I've got it. I'm stronger than you. I'm more wise than you. No. True wisdom is not one who does that. When we share our wisdom, it's not to show us that we're better or stronger or more important than someone else, but it's for other reasons. It's to be meek and gentle. And that's what we see here. In fact, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. He says, blessed are the gentle, for they shall, what? Inherit the earth. That's the idea, the meek. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. So rephrase this for you. Uh, this statement, by his good conduct, let him show the works and meekness of wisdom. And here's how I rephrased it. If you are wise, you will display your wisdom with gentleness in your everyday life. If you are truly wise, if you truly have the wisdom of God, you're going to display your wisdom with gentleness or meekness in your everyday life. So I think that then begs the question, if I ought to be showing that, this, this gentleness in my everyday life by displaying this wisdom, then what is the good conduct or works that wisdom ought to be presenting? Right? If I ought to display these works in gentleness, then what are the works that I ought to display? And that's what James answers here in verse 14 and following. So let's look together at a couple of things. The first thing I want us to see is what wisdom is not. In order to understand what wisdom is, I think sometimes it's good to talk about the negative. That's what James gives us first, is what wisdom isn't, and that is earthly wisdom. So there's dichotomy here. There's two types of wisdom we're going to see in James. There's heavenly wisdom from above, and there is earthly wisdom. So let's look at the earthly wisdom. Um, there's another, Calvin and Hobbes, because um, I think if you're going to find out what wisdom is, you've got to go to Calvin and Hobbes, right? Um, so Calvin's talking. He says this, the more you know, the harder it is to take decisive action. Once you become informed, you start seeing complexities and shades of gray, right? The more you, you realize, like, the more knowledge you get, the more you realize what you don't know, and you start to understand it's not just black and white, right? He said, you realize that nothing is as clear and as simple as it first appears. Ultimately, knowledge is paralyzing. So he throws his book behind him, right? Being a man of action, I can't afford to take that risk. So Hobbes says, you're ignorant, but at least you can act on it, right? You ever feel that way? Are people around you? Don't. No nudging, okay? No nudging. Um, but that's earthly wisdom, right? Acting on ignorance. In fact, that's what we're going to see here, what we act on. Look at the driving force of earthly wisdom from James. The driving force of earthly wisdom is two things. The first thing we see is it's a bitter jealousy. Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. The first two things we see that drive bad wisdom or earthly wisdom is bitter jealousy, covetousness, having no concern for those that are the object of the desire, but instead of being happy for others' blessings, instead of rejoicing with our brothers and sisters who have been given good, we are what? We are obnoxiously, bitterly, poignantly jealous. We are upset that they got it and that we didn't get it, and we want it now. So our wisdom and what we do is going to drive us so that we can get what we want, regardless of anyone else in our path. So in other words, you do right, your wisdom is given, but it's for the purpose of bringing down others or to get what you want in jealousy. But not only bitter jealousy, but what does he say, earthly wisdom, the driving force behind it is selfish ambition. The driving force behind earthly wisdom is not just bitter jealousy, but also selfish ambition. If I can say it this way, mercenary interest. Like you have an interest, but only as long as it concerns you. You'll help others. You'll give them your time. You'll give them your talent, right? You'll give them your wisdom, what you know, but only if it benefits you first. I'm sure you've met people like that. They'll help you when you ask for help, 
but only because now they're one up, right? So next time when they need something, they expect you to help because they helped you last time. Um, I don't know if you ever, if you watch shows, but um, some shows depict that really well. I think there's an episode of The Office that does that really well, where Dwight and Andy are helping each other, but it's only so they can be like one up on the other. So Dwight will help Andy, and he's like, ha, ha, I'm better now. He's always going to owe me. And then he'll do something like, oh, now I owe him. And like, he's going back doing stuff. For, and like, back and forth, right? Have you had people like that before? That only do things for you so they can then get things in return? That's earthly, that is earthly wisdom. It's selfish ambition. It describes those who seek only their own. They are motivated to help. They are motivated to share wisdom only to promote their own agenda. You write only because it is best for me. They do right only because it is best for them. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find myself in this category. Sometimes I find myself doing things for other people, maybe because it's expected of me, I don't want to look bad. Maybe because I know I should, even though I don't want to. I think sometimes we, we find ourselves in that category pretty easily. And if we're not careful, we find ourselves sharing wisdom or helping or being involved in other people's lives only for the sake of how it then impacts us. But Scripture says that as believers, that's not the kind of wisdom we ought to have. It's not the kind of fearing of the Lord that ought to be evidenced in our life. So these are the driving forces of earthly wisdom, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. So when you ask yourself, if you're going to share wisdom, if you're going to help someone, why are you helping them? Are you helping them to help yourself? Are you sharing what you know in order to seem smart and to look better? Or are you genuinely sharing your wisdom or helping others because you honestly want to help them and that's what your motive is? And that would be the difference between earthly and heavenly wisdom. Uh, MacArthur says this about this last phrase, do not boast or be false to the truth, right? So if you have bitter, if you have bitter jealousy or selfish ambition, and that's why you're sharing your wisdom, Scripture says this, do not boast or be false to the truth. In other words, if you're using that wisdom and claiming to be a believer, you're a liar. Believers that act like this, that do things to help themselves, that share wisdom, pretend like they're high and mighty or smarter or better, and they're doing it for their own sake or for the sake of jealousy, he says, you're a liar. Uh, MacArthur says it this way, there is nothing more characteristic of fallen, unredeemed men than being dominated by self. James is therefore saying that if a person claims to belong to God and to have the wisdom of God, but his life is motivated and characterized by selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, he is simply lying against the truth. Whatever he might claim, he cannot be saved. He is living a lie. Whatever he might claim, he cannot be saved because he is living a lie. Do not boast or be false to the truth. So I would ask you to then examine your own desires or your own motivations for sharing wisdom or helping others. It ought to be bitter jealousy or selfish ambition. But then there are characteristics of earthly wisdom. So what are the characteristics of bad wisdom? The first thing is that it's earthly. Right? We see that here in, in this passage of Scripture. He says, that is not wisdom. The bitter jealousy, the selfish ambition, that is not wisdom that comes down from above. Remember, if someone claims to be a believer and exhibits that on a regular basis, they are, that's not what believers exhibit. That's not how believers act. That is the kind of wisdom that does not come down from above, but is what? Three words he uses. Earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. The first thing we see is that it's earthly. In other words, Earthly wisdom is only concerned with the now. 
is only concerned with the now. People that have earthly wisdom that, that are only concerned with what they can get now, what they can get in this life, they have no concern of the spiritual or of the afterward. Right? Only concerned with now or the temporary. James chapter 4 and verse 14 shares very clearly with us that's not something we ought to do. The next chapter says this. Yet do you not know what tomorrow will bring? What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then what? It then vanishes. We don't know how much time we have. Life is temporary. We are told to not live for this earth, and yet that is what earthly wisdom does. But not only is it earthly, but it is unspiritual. Unspiritual wisdom is worldly. It's not concerned at all with anything to do with God. Not concerned at all with anything to do with God. It goes directly against what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33 when he says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and what? All these other things will be added to you. So earthly wisdom is first, I know, bad wisdom. Ungodly wisdom is first earthly, unspiritual. And lastly, as if that wasn't enough to tell you that that kind of wisdom is bad, the last word he uses is what? Demonic. It's not just a, a, a black and white kind of, hey, you can, be, you can be in a gray area somewhere. It's okay to be in a gray area, right? Like you're not really... Maybe you're not really a good Christian or a vibrant Christian or you're not really maybe real close to God, but you know, you're, not as, you're not over here like hanging out with like Satan either. Right? You're not doing seances and like murdering cats. Right? That's not your thing. So maybe there's an in-between, right? You're not, not really for God, not really against God, but you're kind of somewhere in between. That's an unbiblical approach. Actually, Scripture tells us very clearly that there is no in-between. Either you're for God or you're against God. There is no in-between. Your, your neighbors that don't know Christ that seem to be really good people, maybe they're philanthropists, they give back of their own accord, but they're not believers. According to Scripture, they're against God. There is no gray area when it comes to our relationship with God. And demonic is not just not good, but it's actually in opposition of who God is. Satan is actively seeking to destroy the cause of Christ. He is seeking to destroy and thwart God's plans. You know what Scripture says about that for us? In Romans chapter 5 and verse 10, talking about salvation, he says this, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. What does it say you were before you got saved? Were you just in a gray area? No. It says that you were actually his enemy. You were actively opposed to who God is. There's, there's either you're for God, you've got heavenly wisdom, you're living for God in the fear of the Lord, or... You have earthly, unspiritual, and even as far as demonic wisdom. You're actively opposed to the things of God. And we like to think that we're not being demonic or acting in a demonic way or having demonic wisdom. But how many of you know when you ought to be doing something that God's called you to do? And yet in your heart you justify what you're doing as a small sin? Or it's okay, this is a pet sin of mine, I'm, I'll just ask forgiveness for this later. Or I'll do it, it's all right, not a big deal and I just live with it? According to Scripture, that is demonic wisdom. That's the kind of thinking that Satan wants you to have because it's keeping you from enjoying a right relationship with God and the fear of God, right, and being wise to be able to live for him and promote his kingdom. That is demonic wisdom because you are actively opposed and choosing your sin when you know you ought not to. You're actively opposing God's plan, God's will, and God's kingdom in your life. That's demonic wisdom. So what is the results of the earthly wisdom then? That's what it is. That's what it's characterized by. So what 
is the end of that. If you choose to live like that, if you choose to live your life in such a way that you are going to live earthly, unspiritual, demonic, and use this kind of wisdom, what's the end result? Well, uh, in verse 16, it says this, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be what? Disorder, confusion, and every vile practice. So these two things are interesting. The idea of disorder is the idea of confusion. In other words, a place where there's disruption of peace. And that's important to remember because what he's getting ready to say about good wisdom is that it has peace and that we're peacemakers. So if you're earthly wisdom, you'll have disruption, chaos, right? And then this last couple words are really interesting. You'll have vile things or vile practices. That word for practice is actually the Greek word pragma, which is where we get our word what? Pragmatism. Right? Pragmatism, the idea that it doesn't matter what I do, uh, it's a thought process as long as the what? The end result is okay. So here's what he's saying. If you follow this earthly, this earthly wisdom, it will result in confusion. Your life will not be ordered. It will not end up like you want. Specifically, it'll end up vile or bad pragmatism. In other words, nothing good will ever come of that kind of wisdom. You think you know best? You want to choose based on your own earthly wisdom or your own unspiritual wisdom or your own demonic plans to, to think that you can separate yourself from God and not do what God has called you to do? You are welcome to do that and your free will choose to sin. But it will never end well for you. And I think everyone in this room who's a believer and has been a believer for any length of time at all can testify to the fact that when we choose to go our own way and to do our own thing and to make our own paths, those paths are never straight. Those paths are never good, and they always end up in disorder. They always end up poor. So that is negative, that is ungodly, earthly wisdom. So then let's look at the flip side of that. If we're called to wisdom and fear of the Lord, what does good wisdom in our life look like? What is it? It is godly wisdom. So let's look then at the next verse, verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure. The very first thing we see that wisdom is, according to Scripture, it's not earthly, it's not unspiritual, it's not demonic, but what is it first and foremost? It is pure. And it's interesting that he does say that. He doesn't just say wisdom from above is pure and peaceable and just lists this huge list. The very first thing he says, it is what? First pure. In other words, all of these other characteristics will stem from this idea of wisdom first being pure. And the idea of pure wisdom is the idea of free from contamination or defilement. This word pure is the same word that is used to describe God. It is the Greek word for holy. When he says, be ye holy in the Old Testament as I am holy, right? That's that word for holy. Wisdom from God is first and foremost pure, set apart. It is holy. What does that mean for us? It means that if you attempt to add in any of your own wisdom, it then becomes defiled. It is no longer separate. If you attempt to then add your own ideas to the mix, your own opinions to the mix, oh, I can do it this way. I know God has to do it like that, but I'm going to alter that a little bit. And just as one little piece, I'm not going to obey God in. That wisdom is not pure then. It becomes your own wisdom because you have now defiled the separate, sanctified, set-apart wisdom that God has lovingly given to each and every one of us for our own personal development and growth. And yet we screw it up. 
by adding our own impurities to that pure wisdom. And so he says here, first and foremost, true wisdom recognizes that we can't get wisdom from anywhere else but from who? But from God. And yet as believers, oftentimes, and I'll speak for myself here, oftentimes it's easy for me to find advice, wisdom from unsaved people. Does that mean you can't ever get good ideas from people that aren't believers? Well, no. But what it does mean is when you're making major decisions, when you're choosing how to live your life in a major way, whether it's pleasing to God or not pleasing to God, then why in the world do we run after people that aren't even believers and, and follow them and, and mold our thinking to those podcasts or to those TV shows? Or what does, I'll you know, date myself now, what does Oprah say, right? What does Dr. Phil have to say about this? What does Spock say about how I ought to raise my children? And it's not that you can't glean things like eating fish, right? Eat the fish and you spit out the bones. It's not that we can't glean things from that, but as believers, our wisdom needs to first and foremost and unapologetically come from where? Come from the scriptures. And we don't need to apologize for that. People ask our view on things, well, yeah, I don't, I don't choose it. Yeah, because the Bible, right? And oftentimes we'll do that. But unapologetically, we say, hey, listen, my wisdom first and foremost is pure because it is not my own wisdom. That's why I know what I'm telling you is okay, because it's God's wisdom, right? Because God has given this to us. So it has to be pure. Um, a good example of this for me anyways, uh, I, I'm a huge fan. Like, I need to get a t-shirt. I'm a huge fan of Family Mart. Anyone a Family Mart fan? That's not a rhetorical question. You can raise your hand. You can shout it. We can clap today. Woo, Family Mart, right? Anybody a Lawson's fan? Get out, we're done. No, I'm just kidding. I like them all. But the reason I like Family Mart the most, and here's just one, just one thing as to why I like Family Mart the most. I love those little onigiris, right? They're awesome. I love the pizza mons. If you had those, the little steamed buns, that pizza in the middle, oh, that's from heaven. Or their fried chicken, that's better than almost, yeah, I'm getting hungry, sorry. All right, so awesome stuff. But the reason I go to Family Mart instead of Lawson's when they're directly across the street from one another is because Family Mart has the big can of Coca-Cola. It's a dollar, not the bottle, it's the can, the big one, for only a buck. It's such a good deal. And Japanese Coke, if you haven't tried it yet, is better than American Coke. Because like Mexican Coke, they use cane sugar instead of corn syrup. So it's got a much better flavor. And I'll go there every day of the week and just get like four, not every day, but get like four Cokes and put them in the house. I'll bring them home. My wife, that's my way to her heart, right, is to bring her a Coke from Family Mart, like a, just awesome stuff, right? But not Pepsi, I don't want to know who it is in this room that's a Pepsi fan. Don't raise your hand because my wisdom will then leave me in all ways, shapes, or forms. I will color your, yeah. Not, not Pepsi. The original, the real thing the commercial said, right? Coca-Cola. And there's a difference, right? There really is. Like you go, my wife's from South Carolina. I passed her there for a little while. Not RC Cola. Yeah, RC Cola, old school. It's not bad. Not RC Cola. Not the, what is it, the Mr. Pib or the, not Mr. Pib, the, the off-brand stuff, right? The, the, I don't know, what is it called? That, the, anyways, the weird, weird off-brand stuff from Walmart. Not that stuff either, right? And not, definitely not Pepsi. Like, you give me both in a cup, I'm going to spit the one out that I know is Pepsi. Like, it's a huge difference, a huge difference. The real original Coke. But, you know, if you add stuff to it, if you change it, it's very noticeable, right? The vanilla Coke, not the same. Cherry Coke, although good, it's not the same as a classic Coke, right? Give me a glass with ice of nice classic Coke. Add things to it. I know it's different. Alter it. Try to be a substitute or a pretender like Pepsi. It's not the same, right? 
And that's what we see here from Scripture in that point. Godly wisdom is the real thing. It is set apart. It's pure. When you add anything to it, when you try to disguise it, when you try to make it something different, it is no longer godly set apart wisdom. So it's first pure. And then we see the next word here in verse 17. Not only is it pure, but he says then. In other words, that purity then brings about these other characteristics. Let's look at these really quickly. The first thing we see that brings about is that you are peaceable, right? But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. Scripture says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, blessed are the what? The peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of Wisdom doesn't cause conflict. We don't seek to correct people in order to make them feel stupid or dumb or to cause conflicts in life. We don't seek to influence lives to cause a disruption and warfare. But what we do is we seek to help. We are peacemakers. Not only is it peaceable, but it is gentle. And this word for gentle is actually a different word, or this peaceable is a different word than the word used earlier for gentle. This word is the idea of being courteous or unpretentious. And it's got an idea or a hint or a flavor of humbleness associated with it. In other words, as we share and as we live, we are doing it, are living our lives and helping others in a courteous manner, seeking not our own benefit, but really to help them because we genuinely care. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have what? Love one for another, that we are courteous and we share that with others. But not only that, but we are open to reason. Godly wisdom is teachable and compliant and not stubborn. Godly wisdom is teachable and compliant and not stubborn. If you're here today like me and you are hard-headed and stubborn, that is not good, and we have to constantly be working on that. Because stubbornness is actually an evidence of earthly wisdom. Because godly wisdom is willing to be taught. It's willing to learn. It's willing to see where we have mistake, we have done wrong, because then we can correct it to be closer to God right? To write ourselves with what the Word of God says. So it is open to reason, full of mercy. Sermon on the Mount again, blessed are the what? The merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Wisdom doesn't hold wrong over other people's heads. Honey, you've done wrong. I'm going to remember this forever, right? Do you remember that one time seven years ago, right? Wisdom doesn't do that. Wisdom is full of mercy, full of good fruits, demonstrates genuine faith by, by genuine good works. And we don't need to talk a lot about this because two weeks ago, um, Stephen Griffin preached from James chapter 2, talks about how genuine faith is then, the result of genuine faith is what? Good works, right? You, I'll show you my faith by my works. When you've genuinely believed, genuine fruit does follow. Because dogs bark, cats meow, Christians grow and show good fruit. They have good works. It's just what we do. It's what Christians ought to be doing. Not only are you full of good fruits, but you're impartial. You don't show favoritism. That was already addressed in James chapter 2. When he talks about uh, showing partiality toward rich people versus poor people, just based on who they are in appearance or what their status is. And that is not godly. We don't show favoritism. And then we're sincere. We're not deceitful or hypocritical. We actually want to help. We genuinely seek to help others and with sincerity share our faults and we share our strengths and we're seeking to help one another. That is what genuine wisdom really is. 
And in closing then, if we share genuine wisdom, if we have genuine wisdom from God because we fear the Lord, what is the result in our lives? We saw what the result of earthly wisdom was, right? We saw that result. What was that result? It was not good. It was disorder. Bad things end, right? That was basically the this verse said bad things, right? So what is the result of godly wisdom? Well, look with me at verse 18. If you share godly wisdom, if you are practicing godly wisdom because of the fear of the Lord, verse 18 says this, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let me reorder this because it's kind of a little backwards in the way we typically talk to make this a little clearer. Here's what verse 18 says. Those who make peace will sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Godly wisdom results in us as peacemakers sowing in peace and reaping a harvest of righteousness. Only godly wisdom will allow us to make or sow in peace and harvest righteousness. And this is, two, this is a result, I think, twofold for us as believers as we close. The first thing we see here is the immediate context. In other words, the cycle of wisely interacting with those around us in a godly manner will produce righteousness, not only in ourselves as we grow ourselves, but it will produce righteousness or sanctification and growth in the life of others as we impact them and do life with them in community. So as you live with godly wisdom and exhibit these traits as God has called you to do in the fear of him, you will help in this cycle of harvest. Because harvest in this time wasn't like one time usually. It was typically a continual thing as you planted and harvested, planted and harvested. So as believers, if we live wisely as God has called us to live, we will continually be wisely interacting with those around us in a godly manner, producing righteousness not only in our life, but helping others to then grow and be sanctified in their own walk and in their own righteousness. Because those things are contagious, right? We can rub those characteristics off on others. They can help to grow because in community, we are in this together, right? Christianity is not a solo sport. We weren't meant to do life individually apart and alone from one another. Regularly, I meet Marines that, that will transfer here to Okinawa and be on particularly Camp Hansen where we're at because we're even more isolated, right? These single Marines that don't have vehicles, they don't get out, that have been believers, that haven't been to church in four and five months, and they're really struggling. And one of the first things I tell them as a believer is you have to be involved with other believers. We weren't meant to do this alone. This community is awesome, right? It's something that really helps us to, to grow in our faith and to be like what Christ has called us to be. But not only the immediate context, but let me broaden this just a little bit um, to encourage you this morning. This is my personal understanding of this. Um, not a lot has been written on this verse, so I do know this is a little unique. So take it or leave it. Spit the bones out if you need to. But what I see here in this verse is even a more broader spectrum of this. So in Matthew, sorry, in Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, here's what God says about what peace is according to the gospel. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That peace is not peaceable as in not warring and fighting, really. This has really a legal claim to it. The idea that before you were saved, you were under the condemnation of God because you were living in unrighteousness. And then when you got saved and you were justified by faith, you were no longer under the condemnation of the just judge. But now because of Christ, when he looks at you, he doesn't see you anymore. Who does he see? He sees Christ's righteousness. 
So you no longer have to be sent to hell and punishment because you have been justified by faith in Christ. So you are at peace, a legal standing between you and God. So when we talk about this peace here in verse 18, that in other words, those who make peace will sow peace. Those who make peace, I believe that as believers, we are making peace on a regular basis because we have been made at peace with God through salvation. And as a regular basis, as we share with others what he's doing in our lives and we share this godly wisdom with those we come in contact with, we are also sharing the peace of God, which is the gospel, which is us being justified by faith. So those who make peace and sow in peace, according to Romans, are those who share the gospel with others. The Sermon on the Mount, once again, in chapter 5 and verse 9 says this, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. It doesn't mean that you go around making sure there's no fighting, although we do a little bit of that. The peacemakers, according to Scripture, are those who give God's peace to others so that they too can be reconciled in right relationship with Jesus Christ. Those believers who exhibit godly wisdom are sharing the gospel with those around them because their focus is pure. And those that sow in the gospel will reap a harvest of righteousness either bringing others closer to Christ in righteousness, because that's what that word is right there. It's that righteousness of Romans, or helping them to grow in righteousness themselves. So believers, let me encourage you this morning. Let us fear the Lord, obey his commandments, follow what James has given to us to do, to have not only a right knowledge of who God is, but then allow that knowledge to then propel us to do what is right in conduct so that our wisdom can be shared with others, so that not only we can grow in righteousness, but we can share the gospel with those we come into contact with, and they can understand the true wisdom of the scripture, grow themselves, or come to a knowledge of who Christ is, because we fear the Lord in wisdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for teaching us from wisdom that we ought to fear you. Lord, I think everyone in this room, we come today to learn from you, to hear from you. And Lord, I pray that as you have convicted hearts for not being wise as we ought to, that you would help us to be more wise by studying your word and fearing you more. And those that are, are doing a good job of this and trying their best, we ask that even if they're not, this isn't a problem, that you would help us to increase in this, that we would increase our wisdom, we would increase our right living before you so that you would be pleased with us and that we would be these peacemakers, bringing others to gospel knowledge and increasing our own sanctification. In your son's name, we ask these things. Amen. Thank you.